If you would, please open God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8 in its entirety this morning, Lord willing. Last week we, we touched on this a little bit, and I mentioned to you that this passage, 1 through 8, reveals the wonder of God's condescension, and it reveals the Christian's motivation. The passage is extremely theological, it is deeply theological, and it is set in the context of the practical or the ethical. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8, and I want you to look with me and listen as God addresses us from his holy and inerrant word this morning. Beginning in verse 1, it says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind or attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The text before us illustrates how the gospel of Jesus Christ saves and sanctifies his people. In verse 5, we see the hinge point in this text. In verse 5, Paul is moving from the exhortation in verses 1 to 4 to the illustration in verses 6 to 8. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul motivates the church to humbly unite by exalting Christ's incarnational work. It's the work of Christ that should motivate everything we do in life. We don't do things to receive God's love and praise. We have God's love and praise in Christ. And because of that, we are motivated to magnify His greatness and His grace. And we do that because Christ came to us. He pitched his tent among us. He lived the life that we could never live for us. And we should want to magnify that life in gracious and humble, joyful obedience. And that's what Paul's addressing here. In the outline of this text, in verses 5 to 6, Paul describes how Jesus abandoned self-exaltation so that we can exalt his humility by, number one, abandoning self-exaltation joyfully. Jesus abandoned his self-exaltation joyfully, so should we. In verse 7, Paul describes how Jesus put on selfless dedication so that we can exalt him and his humility by putting on selfless dedication personally. In verse 8, Paul describes how Jesus embraced sacrificial humiliation. He did that so that we can exalt his humility by putting on sacrificial humiliation 
ourselves corporately. So we, we should abandon self-exaltation joyfully, put on selfless dedication personally, and embrace sacrificial humiliation corporately to magnify Christ's work. This is a text that's addressed to the church. It's addressed to us as we gather together in Christ's name and we do so for his exaltation. In verses 5 to 6, Paul teaches us that the highest one of all became the lowliest to unite his church and to reveal his grace and his power through us. And he did that by abandoning self-exaltation. He did that so that we can exalt Jesus' humility joyfully when we gather together with God's people corporately. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, have, have this mind. It means have this thought, have this process of thinking, this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You, you have the mind of Christ. It's revealed in the Word of God. So take what you know about Christ, apply that to your own heart, to your own life, and think the way Christ thought. Look at the world through the lens of Christ's eyes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form or the morphe of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted. Verse 6, the first part, verse 6a, Paul writes that Jesus was in the form of God. Again, this word form here is the Greek word morphe, which means the, the, the internal, he had the internal, abiding, inherent nature of God. This was the true nature that was within him, has always been his nature. He has had this nature from before the foundation of the world. He has always been, by nature, God. He is deity. Within his natural form, he has always existed as God. He is God. That's what that statement is saying. He was eternally God. Jesus pre-existed in the divine form as God, according to Colossians 1. Look with me there. Colossians 1, 15. Speaking of Jesus in verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, that's Jesus, all things were created. So He's the Creator. All things were created by Him, he says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And He, Jesus, is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The good news, the hope is God became man. God took on flesh. Verse 17 identifies Jesus as 
fully God. It says, Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That word in the Greek for He is before all things, that phrase is He and He and no other. He autos. He and no other was before all created things. And one thing that's created is time. So Jesus was before the creation of time. He preexisted as God, Almighty God, God the Son. Christ has always been God by nature. That's Paul's argument here and in Philippians. He is equal to the Father and the Spirit. And before, during, and after his incarnation, Jesus was and is fully God. But, according to verse 6 there in Philippians 2, the God who has existed before all things, holds all things together, veiled his glory for us. He abandoned self-exaltation for a time here on earth for our salvation and for our eternal joy, according to what it says in Philippians 2.6. He says, he did, not, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that means to be selfishly asserted. He did not count his equality with God a thing to selfishly assert when he came to earth to be our substitute. He was fully God, but he refused to assert or cling to his divine rights as God for our sake. This is a great condescension that God has expressed to us in coming to us to become like us, to live for us the life we could never live so that his merits would be counted toward us. Jesus didn't lose anything when he came to earth and took on flesh. He, it, says, it says in verse 6 that he... He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't didn't selfishly hold on to it, but he didn't lose anything when he came here either. He has always been eternal God. He will always be eternal God. But he veiled his deity for a while in his humanity so that he could do something for us personally. He could die in our place. He could show us God's love for us personally. By becoming like us. He comes to show us that we cannot save ourselves, so He comes to live for us and then die in our place. He humbles Himself. We should humble ourselves out of gratefulness for what He's done to save us. He refused to assert His divine rights so that He could reveal God's divine love and justice. Look what it says in Hebrews 12. God... Loved the world so much that He sent His only Son to be our substitute. To show us His love personally. And Jesus comes to this earth humbly and joyfully on our behalf, according to this text. In Hebrews 12, 1b, the latter half of verse 1, it says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He came joyfully, and he came humbly to show us God's love personally. Now this is astounding. Jesus comes to earth in the form of a man, fully God, yet taking on human flesh out of God's love for us. 
He comes to accomplish what we could never accomplish. He comes to live a righteous life for us and to humbly die under God's wrath in our place. This is astounding. He stoops low to exalt God's love and to elevate lowly sinners. In Philippians 2.6, what we're seeing described is an illustration of the exhortation in verse 3. In verse 6, he describes Jesus' his, his self-abandonment here. And in verse 3, we are called and commanded to humble ourselves. Look what it says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul's argument is basically this. Since we are so low that it took Christ, God the Son, humbling Himself to save us, we should humble ourselves joyfully as we labor with others that God has saved by His grace. We should labor with them and for them as fellow forgiven sinners, those who have been redeemed by the humility of Christ. Christ humbled Himself to exalt the lowly, so we should seek to elevate and edify those He came to save joyfully. We should see their needs as more important than our own. We should do for them what we want done to us joyfully out of great humility because Christ has set aside His glory to become like us, to forgive us, and to accept us and elevate us to the place and position as children of God. And we exalt Christ when we follow this example. We exalt Christ when we abandon self-exaltation joyfully. And Christ his, his abandonment of self-exaltation brought us salvation. Therefore, we should abandon self-exaltation for edification, for the edification of those He came to save. And we do that, secondly, by putting on selfless dedication. Look with me at verse 7 in Philippians 2. We are to put on selfless dedication like Christ so that we can exalt Jesus' humility personally, not just joyfully, Joyfully would not be really relevant unless it was personally exhibited. We are to be exhibiting our joy personally as we serve others in the body by putting on selfless dedication like Christ did when it says in verse 7 that He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is a very interesting phrase in verse 7 when it says He took the form of a servant. He took the morphe of a slave, a doulos. In other words, internally, though he was fully God before the creation of the world, after the creation of the world, and will be forever God, internally, he was also truly and completely humanly submitted to God's will. He had the true and real nature of a slave from the heart. He did not fake this. It wasn't just an external act. It was his heart as our substitute who was completely submitted to God on our behalf. He was a true slave for God's sake. He was born, though, in the likeness of men. The word likeness isn't morphe. It's not, in the sense, an internal look at his heart. It's an outward look at his physical form. He was 
made just like men. He was outwardly, physically the same as all of us. Inwardly, he was a servant. Outwardly, he was a human. Before the foundation of the world, he was forever deity, and he will always be. But he sets that aside, that visible glory, for a time to become like us, to, to live as a perfect servant of God in our place, as a human, completely obedient to God for us. When he took on flesh, he, he willingly laid aside the expression of his divine attributes, but not the possession of those divine attributes. He still remained fully God. He healed. He raised the dead. He, he calmed the sea. He controlled nature. He forgave sinners. He was forever and completely, fully God, though he chose to lay aside the expression of these divine attributes for the most part as he served as a slave in our place, obedient to the will of God for us. He, he emptied himself, is what this text says. He emptied himself of the display of his deity so, so that he could actually bring to us his obedience and impute that to us, place it on our account. He emptied himself, though, by putting something on, by putting on the robe of a slave. He didn't lose anything. This isn't God losing part of his deity here. That would be impossible. It's not divine subtraction. It's divine addition. He added humanity to his deity. He emptied himself by adding human nature to his divine nature. He, he literally and physically added humility to his glory. He, he willingly added humanity to his deity so that we, we <laughs> sinners, could be saved through his obedience, through his willing sacrifice, through his attitude as a perfect and righteous slave submitted to God completely from the heart. He did this so that he could live and die for us. He could become our living sacrifice, our perfect substitute. That's what Hebrews 2 actually tells us. Look at Hebrews 2, 2 9. Now, just, I want you to think about this for just a moment before I read this text. Paul, Paul's making an argument in Philippians 2, 1 to 8. He, he's giving us an exhortation in the first four verses to tell us how we should operate in the church. He bases his argument off of what Christ has accomplished for us. And I want you to think about this. Look at the lengths that God has went to to sanctify His blood-bought people. He has sent His Son to be our substitute. Not so that we can have a social gathering on Sundays, but so that we can magnify His Son's work when we gather corporately when we go out evangelistically. God, God emphasizes in this text, in Philippians 2, 1-8, that we should be humble. We should be selflessly dedicated to others because of what Christ has done to set us apart unto Himself. This is absolutely astounding. Jesus died to make you a part of His church. He puts you in His body. He came and lived in humility and obscurity, ignoble, cast out from society because we who are ignoble and cast outs needed someone to come to us to rescue us. 
realize this, when, when it says that he became a slave, a doulos, even in that society, he's talking about the lowest position possible. The most glorious one became the most ignoble one to rescue defiled sinners like us. I mean, sometimes we're pretty proud. We're, we're pretty self-focused. We're pretty conceited. We have a lot of selfish ambition until we look at Christ and we recognize what He set aside to be our substitute. He came to redeem us from our selfishness. He came to show us that His life, His death, was granted to us because of our selfishness. We could never enter into God's presence apart from this great humiliation that Christ experienced. Hebrews 2, 9 says, But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see Him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The Creator was made lower than angels, yet He's crowned at this point because He suffered death. Well, the wages of sin is death. The only one who should die is the sinner. Yet the sinless Son of God, Creator, Sustainer of the entire universe, died. It says in verse 9, So that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that would be Jesus. The one who came to rescue us from our sinful condition, who humbled himself to become like us, who emptied himself as, of his, the, his expression of his glory to become humiliated. That one who saved us personally brought us together corporately. And He wants us to magnify His humility in our fellowship, in our lives. Jesus humbled Himself to live in obedience to God's will perfectly as our substitute. He humbled Himself and He died in obedience to God's justice as our substitute. You read this text in Philippians 2, 6, and you see, and in 7 and 8 even, you see that Jesus humbled Himself because God loved us and sent His Son to die for us. And Jesus came willingly as the perfect slave in obedience to the Father. And He came personally and physically taking the form of a servant, according to verse Seven. His internal human desire was that of an obedient slave. Yet outwardly he was fully and completely human. And so as a slave he would do whatever it took humanly to fulfill God's law perfectly. And eventually that led him to a cross to die as our substitute because our sins deserve death. And the perfect slave was obedient to the righteousness of God who said that you will have to tie in their place as their substitute humanly. The word there for likeness refers to the external true substance of a creature. 
When Jesus came to earth, this is saying, when He came, though He was fully God and He didn't assert His deity outwardly, He was truly God, yet He was subduing that glory for a time by becoming a slave. But He came, and He came just like you and me. He came humanly. And when He came, He didn't come as the King of kings outwardly, though He was sustaining the universe continually. He came as the lowly son of a carpenter. He came in the likeness of men. He became truly man at His incarnation. He was truly human in substance. If you touched Him, you felt flesh. He was truly human in His nature. He felt the things we feel. Yet He was different at the same time. He was sinless. He felt everything exponentially. He felt everything with the intensity of the, the one who's never experienced sin. He felt everything perfectly. Look with me at Hebrews 4, 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. When we're tempted by sin, we give in to it. We cave into it. We submit to our temptations. And we sin. Christ was tempted, yet never had the outlet of giving in. He felt the temptation with the intensity that would be beyond our understanding. Humanly, He felt it without any release. Hebrews 7, 25 says... Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We have one who offered Himself up for us by taking our place at every point in our life, as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, he was tempted, yet without sin. He lived in this world like us humanly, yet He never caved in to the world's depravity. He faced it head on. This is astounding. He did what we can't do. and He did what we're required to do, which is to obey the law of God from the heart. Jesus didn't begrudge God for making Him human. It says He humbled Himself, taking on the form of a slave. He came willingly. He came to submit to God's will for us because we can't do it on our own. He came and He was sinless in our place. He came into the world like all human babies, born of a woman, yet without sin. He, he grew up physically like all humans, yet without sin. He grew hungry and thirsty and needy and tired like all humans, yet without sin sin. He would weep for the hurting like all humans, yet without sin. You ever think about that? We weep for those who are hurt, yet we still have an element of depravity that makes it about us. Jesus, though, He, he wept without sin. 
He weeps perfectly for you when you hurt. You understand that? He is your sympathetic high priest. When you hurt, no matter what you've went through, no matter what you're going through, He weeps for you completely and totally dedicated to your need without any selfishness involved in it. He is weeping for you because He loves you. He understands your suffering. He came like a human. He grew up like a human. He suffered like a human. And He was destined to die like all humans. He was our perfect substitute in every way, even in our death. Yet His death was different. Unlike all humans, Jesus' death was voluntary. It was vicarious. And it was accomplished out of willful obedience because of our disobedience. He came willingly to die. To die under His Father's wrath against us. He came to die the worst death that anyone could die. He came to receive eternal wrath in our place. To have His Father turn His back on Him. The one He was always united with before the foundation of the world. He was separated from Him on the cross. For our sake. Because we who have separated ourselves from God because of our sin could not come to God on our own. Christ came and was separated for us. He came first and foremost though like us. And He came with the right heart for us in the form of a slave. He came to show us God's mercy personally. He came to show us the mercy that God has for the disobedient by coming to be our obedient one. To stand in our place. And, and Paul seems to think in Philippians 2 that this ought to motivate us as Christians. This, this act that Christ Himself, the glorious one, exhibited by becoming lowly like us and serving us to exalt us before God should affect us. It should cause us to want to put on selfless dedication in the church. That seems to be Paul's thinking here. It seems to be that the gospel seems to be driving sanctification here. Out of joy over what Christ has done as we ponder the work of Christ, we should want to emulate this. We should want to rejoice over His selfless dedication by serving His people in the church. His selfless dedication should motivate us to dedicate ourselves to serve His body joyfully and personally by putting on His attitude practically, corporately. Again, back in Philippians 2.7, what we're seeing is an illustration of the exhortation in verse 3b. When he tells him to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility he is to do this, count others more significant than ourselves. Well, verse 7 is saying that's what Jesus did. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, because he counted us as more significant than his express glory. He came willingly because he counted others more significant than himself. He put on selfless dedication by emptying himself of the outward expression of his divine right so he could personally save us. And He could unite us together in His church. We should emulate that here. The ones who have been served by the Savior should want to emulate our Master. Our Master came to seek 
and to save. He came to serve and not be served. And that should be our attitude. That should be the mind that we have. Have this mind in yourselves. Have the mind of Christ. Based on what he's done in verse 7, we should do what it says in verse 3. Paul illustrates this. You know what I love about the doctrine here that's being taught is that the man who's teaching it is actually living it. Look at 2.17 of Philippians. Paul, in his, his, his mid, mid-thought here in this chapter, says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You know what that says? What that means is this. Paul says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, um, that means even if I'm to be killed for your sake, if I become a sacrifice for your edification, it is worth it. You ought to be happy. You ought to be joyful. You ought to be joyful because I am able to impart to you the truth of Christ, even as I am departing this life. I want to unite you in this truth. I want to exalt Christ through my humility and my service, even if it costs me my life. And you should rejoice over that. He is expressing the doctrine He is commanding us to follow in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. He is expressing the illustration of Christ here physically. He is counting others as more important than Himself, giving His life and devotion to the church at Philippi. And and likewise, we should do the same here in our church. We should all exalt Christ through our service as we care for one another personally and sacrificially. And that's how we exalt Jesus corporately. We, We exalt Jesus when we put on His selfless dedication personally in the body. When we start to really count other people as more important than ourselves in this church family, We magnify the work of Christ's humility. We magnify our Savior who came to us to bear our curse and to save us and unite us in His body forever. We see a perfect illustration of what it means to do that, to put on selfless dedication. We see a perfect illustration of that in Philippians 2.8. That's the third point this morning. In Philippians 2.8, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus humbled himself by, thirdly, embracing sacrificial humiliation. He did that so that we can exalt him through our fellowship corporately. He, He embraced sacrificial humiliation so we can exalt his humility corporately as we gather together. Verse 8 says, He was found in human form. He was truly human. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus died a real human death. The sustainer of all things, the creator of all things, the savior of sinners, died like a sinner. He died our death. He experienced real human agony Not just the physical agony, but the spiritual agony of being separated, being under God's wrath for us because of our sins. 
He experienced real human pain beyond human measure for us. Listen, an eternity in hell could not atone for your sins, for my sins. But yet Christ atoned completely, exhausting God's fury against us on the cross, testifying that He was not only human being our substitute, but He was divine because only God could withstand that kind of wrath and yet live. He rose victoriously on the third day to testify that His work was complete and that God accepted it in our place. We are justified by God's grace through faith in what Christ accomplished as our substitute. Paul thinks this will motivate us to live differently in the church. It will sanctify us. If we focus on what our Savior did to rescue us and to unite us into His body and to protect us for eternity, he thinks this will motivate us practically joyfully and corporately. And what I find interesting in verse 8 is this, that latter half, the very end, it seems kind of redundant when you first look at it. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says that, I am sure, with a trembling lip. Even death on a cross. A Roman citizen, no matter what he has done, as bad as he has ever been, the greatest Roman criminal there ever was, would never be treated to this ignoble death. Paul was a Roman citizen. Writing to the church at Philippi, who was also full of Roman citizens, he says, do you understand what Jesus has done? He came to live for you. He came to die for you. But listen, not just die for you. He died a death that you would never die. He died the most disgusting and degrading and deplorable death ever imagined and created by humans. And you will never die that way. Are you better than your master? No. He died. But not just died. He died the death of the, the damned. He died the worst possible death anyone could ever imagine because that's the death that we deserve. Paul is still shook up about this. Paul had been a faithful apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ for many years and I don't think he ever got past the cross. How can we get past this? When we ponder the work of God in Christ as He humbles Himself under God's wrath in our place, this should motivate unity and humility in the body. We should do this joyfully because Jesus came joyfully and personally to unite us corporately. He died a real human death, but it wasn't an ordinary death. It was the death of death for God's people. It was the death of our death. We will never die because God took on human flesh and took our place. When we die, when our physical bodies expire, we do not die. We enter into the Lord's pleasures forever. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Is he talking to me? Not really. He's talking about Christ in me. See, my, my righteousness and my works and my good deeds here on earth are driven because of what Christ has done for me and imputed to me. And when God accepts me, it's because of what Christ has accomplished in my place. And I'm okay with that. 
I believe that. I trust in that. And when I enter into his presence, I'm going to rejoice in that forever around the throne of God, declaring the Lamb is worthy. The Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world is worthy of my adoration and my worship and my joy forever. He's also worthy of that here today, practically and joyfully and corporately as we gather together. In Jesus' death, the fullness of God's wrath that was stored up against us, was poured out on Him. It was exhausted on the Son of God for us. For those who believe and repent and trust in Christ, turn from their sins, this this great gift of God's Son atoned for our atrocities, our rebellion. Everything God hates, we are. And everything we are, Christ became on the cross. He became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin debt was laid to His account. He willfully took that debt on Himself and He received the wrath that we deserve. Then He and His mercy and His grace imputed to us His righteousness, laid it to our account so that we would be accepted in the Beloved forever. His death released us from death. His death released us from the suffering and curse of eternal death because Jesus was cursed for us. He was cursed on the cross humanly. He was cursed on the cross willingly. He was cursed on the cross obediently. He was cursed on the cross humbly. He was cursed on the cross gruesomely. I think we all know what crucifixion looks like. I think we all have an idea of what we think it looks like anyway. But no one knows what it's like here. And really only Christ knows what this crucifixion was like because it wasn't just a physical death that he died that he was agonizing in. It was the curse of God on him in our place that crushed him and brought forth the sweet aroma to God that pleased him in our place. The crucifixion was the cruelest form of execution that a human could face at this time. When you were crucified, the victim is first generally tortured. Jesus was scourged. Then the victim is nailed or impaled upon a cross. This would ensure that their death came slowly. It was excruciating. That word comes from the cross. Crucifixion was a form of punishment that would draw out the most misery possible for the longest period of time possible to make that person an example to all who would see it, to not do what they did. This was the kind of death that Jesus willfully died for us. When Isaiah 53 was written, it was 700 years plus before Christ was incarnated. And it describes the crucifixion of Jesus. It was written before crucifixion existed. God said, this is the way my son will suffer for sinners. It will be excruciating. On the cross, Jesus suffered blood loss. On the cross, Jesus suffered thirst beyond measure. On the cross, Jesus was suffocating in our place. He was drowning in His own blood under our curse because He loved us. 
He came. God pitched his tent and became like us, for us, to save us. Jesus humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died the death we deserved. He bore the curse of God for us so that we can bear God's love forever. And that, that's supposed to motivate us when we gather together. Everybody you know that's been saved by God's grace through Christ's work is united in this work forever. We're a part of His body. He shed His blood for each and every one of you here that believe upon Him and turn from your sins. In Philippians 2, 5-8, Paul, Paul's thought, Paul's underlying thought is this. If Jesus did all this for us, if He did all this to rescue us, then we should have this mind, this attitude in us when it comes to serving the church, when it comes to serving His people. Paul's thinking that if we focus on Christ's sacrificial suffering here, it will motivate us to embrace sacrificial suffering here in the body. It's a part of God's sanctifying work that will conform us to Christ and reveal Christ's love to the church. See, if we're willing to count others as more significant than ourselves and look not only to our own interests but to the interests of others, it magnifies Jesus. It will edify the suffering. will encourage the weak. will correct those who are in error with love. will serve those who are suffering willfully and personally and joyfully. Again, Philippians 2.8 is giving us the illustration of the command or the exhortation in verse 4. Look not only to your own interests, your needs, but also to the interests of others. In other words, don't just focus on your needs. Elevate the needs of other people to the same degree as your own needs. Lift them up. Count them as more significant than yourselves. When you do this, you magnify and exalt the humility of Jesus. See, sanctification is driven by the joy of what Christ has accomplished for us. It's not just duty. It's delight. When you give yourself to others in the body of Christ, when you serve them willfully, joyfully, personally, there is pleasure that you feel. There is joy in your heart. And that's there because in that moment, you see Jesus at work in the church. It doesn't happen all the time. We struggle with it. We're selfish. We're conceited. We're ambitious. Those things, though, will diminish as we look at what Christ has accomplished. And, and we'll begin to enjoy those moments together, giving ourselves to one another, the way Christ gave Himself to us. And that, that attitude and that desire isn't a result of human effort. That is the, the fruit of Christ's accomplishment. It testifies that we belong to Jesus. That's what motivates us. That's what motivates our humility and our unity in the church. We want to exalt Jesus' accomplishment. We're, we're not a perfect church. The bride needs to be washed. She came off the streets. She still looks like that sometimes. She picks up the debris that's in the streets. And she needs to be washed. But she's the bride that Jesus chose. 
She's the bride that He came after. He, he chose her. He will cleanse her. And we should love her. We should seek to magnify Christ in her by caring for one another. Philippians 2, 6-8 to points us really all the way back to Philippians 1, 27. Look with me there as I conclude. Let me, let me go there with you. The section 6 to 8 really is just supposed to, to fling us back to 127 to 29. That, that really is where all this comes from. It comes from the first exhortation we see there. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what he's pointing us back to. You are to do these things that we see in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2 because you want to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And he's talking about corporately. All these things are corporately given to us so that we would magnify Jesus by our manner of life together as the people of God. So when we come back to 6 through 8, we see that Jesus' abandonment of self-exaltation should motivate us to do what it says in 127. Stand firm in one spirit. Put on the heart of Christ. Stand together. Be united in this. Abandon self-exaltation, selfish ambition in the church. Stand firm in one spirit. Humble yourselves as you think about what Christ has done in coming to us to create His church. How He came low to create His body. Humble yourself. Stand firm in one spirit of humility. That exalts Christ's humility. Do this with joy. Stand firm together, church. Don't let anything shake you from this unity that we have in Christ. Defend one another. Look out for one another. Serve one another. Proclaim the gospel to one another. Abandon self-exaltation for Christ's exaltation. Christ's selfless dedication that we see there in Philippians 2.7, His selfless dedication should motivate us to do what it says in Philippians 1.27b, to strive side by side for the faith, counting one another as more important than ourselves, working together, linking arms together, counting one another as more important than ourselves by serving one another joyfully. This is extremely practical. If we see Jesus' selfless dedication, we should want to strive together joyfully, continually, as Christ's body. We should look out for the, the needs of those that Christ came to die for. If, if Jesus loved you so much that He would come and take your place, then I should love you so much that I am willing to suffer in your place and stand by your side no matter what happens in life. Death and joy and suffering, I'm to stand with you. And I'm to stand with you when you fight battles against sin, fight against false doctrine. I'm to be with you by your side, battling on behalf of Christ. 
In verse 8 of chapter 2, we see Christ's sacrificial hum humiliation. And that's supposed to motivate us to do what it says in Philippians 1.29, to suffer for the sake of Christ. Well, suffer for the sake of Christ would include suffering for the sake of those that Christ has purchased with his own blood. I'm willing to stand up for Christ as a Christian in the body, sacrificially, by looking out for my brothers and sisters, practically. Seeing their needs and recognizing I need to help them rather than just help myself. Even if it causes me to suffer. Think about this. Jesus, who, who deserves infinitely more comfort and praise than we do, chose to live a real human life and experience real human suffering for the sake of His people. You know, sometimes we think about you know, giving up things for the sake of others in the church, and we think, ah, oh, that's really difficult. You know, I, yeah, Jesus did it. Yeah, but Jesus is God, and, and he can do stuff like that because he's holy. That's true. But he was human. Jesus is in the garden, knowing the will of the Father, which was to be the substitute for sinners. He would, he would sacrifice himself for this sake, for the glory of God. He knew that was the will of God. And what's he doing? He's asking God to remove the cup. Because he doesn't want to die either. He doesn't want to die a human death under God's wrath. He clung to life the way we cling to life, yet he saw life as something that he could set aside for the sake of others so that he could magnify the love of God. And we should be able to do that also because the love of Christ is in us. We should be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ sacrificially by looking out for the needs of others here in the church. We exalt Him when we do this. We exalt His sacrificial humiliation when we do this corporately as a body. That's what God wants, according to what it says there in 127. God wants our manner of life together to magnify Christ. He wants the way we live together in the church, to magnify how much Jesus is worth to us. That's what he wants. That's God's desire. The way you care for each other, the way you pursue each other, the way you fellowship with each other, should magnify the worthiness of Christ. Is Christ worth sacrifice? Is Christ worth serving one another? I hope so. I believe so. He's worth doing that. He's worth working together for here on earth. We, we are to magnify Him while we are here as a church. We are to magnify His worth and His work on earth so that one day all the world will see what we see and testify to His glory. Look what it says there in Philippians 2.9. One day the world will see what we get to see now. And, and, and this should humble us. The majority of the world does not understand Philippians 2, 1 through 11. But if you understand it, you need to rejoice in humility this morning and seek to bring God glory here corporately this morning through your willful desire to sacrifice yourself and give yourself in dedication and put away self-exaltation for the sake of His name. Look what it says in verse 9. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Church, listen. That's what we are doing when we gather here every week. That's what we should be doing when we gather together with one another weekly, personally, joyfully, sacrificially. We are doing what the whole world will eventually do when they see King Jesus in all His glory. They will testify that His name is worthy of all praise. His name is Kurios. His name is Lord and Master. And every knee will fall. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that He is worthy of praise and adoration and thanksgiving. And, and we, we, we do that. We do what it says in 9-11. through 11. We testify to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is Lord when we are abandoning self-exaltation, when we are selflessly dedicated to one another, and we are sacrificially humbling ourselves for the sake of the church. We magnify Jesus. We testify to His Lordship in our life. Is Jesus Lord of the church? Yes. Is He Lord of your life? How do you view His church? If the church is secondary to you, Jesus isn't primary. Jesus loved the church and gave His life for the church. Jesus gave Himself for the church. Shouldn't we be motivated by that to give ourselves for the sake of those He came to save personally? and joyfully, right? Let's pray and ask that God would help us to do that in our weakness. Father, we love you because you first loved us and you sent your son to die for us. We thank you for that gift. We thank you for that immeasurable gift of grace. When I try to, to think about the depths of your grace, I find that there is no bottom to it because your, your grace is as immense as you. You are immeasurable. You are sovereign. You are holy. You are just. You are righteous. You are merciful. And, and in eternity, we'll see glimpses of that and never experience it in its fullness because we cannot grasp your fullness. We will forever be your creation and you will forever be the creator. But in Jesus... We'll see the scars of our humanity. The ones that are healed will see the one who is forever scarred by our sins. And we'll see a picture of your love and your mercy and your justice. Personally. That's why I think we'll, we'll sing forever around the throne that the Lamb is worthy. And Lord, I know that everyone here that loves you recognizes that in heaven. That's what our, our duty and delight will be. I pray that, that that would be our duty and delight here on earth. That we would recognize that what we're going to do in eternity should be emulated now practically. And Lord, in our flesh, I know this is impossible to do fully. But by your grace, through your word, through your spirit, through this corporate gathering, I pray that we would be sanctified by the gospel pray that we would be set apart to honor Jesus as Lord of our lives so that the world would see what we see and so that sinners would be drawn by your grace to Christ who saved us. 
who humbles us, who unites us in love and sacrifice. I thank you that you've promised us in Christ that these things are possible. Our flesh fails us, but Christ's flesh never failed in our place. And so by faith, I trust that we will walk in the pursuit of obedience based on what you've accomplished for us, Jesus. Help us to see and savor your truth so that we would be sanctified by it and that we would testify that we are your bride, that we belong to you and you are cleansing us. Lord, as we do that, I pray that our hearts would be broken over the lost who still need to know who you are and what you've accomplished. I pray that you would humble us so much so that we would seek the good of others outside of the church above our own good through missions and through evangelism and through service. I pray that we would humble ourselves like Christ humbled himself to the point of death to self so that we could exalt the humility of Christ. Give us strength to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.